moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. We are back with another episode of Cascading Leadership, the show. I am your host, Jim Canetrail. I am also your host, Lawrence Brown. Hello, Lawrence Brown. Before we talk about the big event for today, I want to cover how far we've gotten since our first handful of episodes. So we've gotten some tremendous response. I'm still a little bit surprised that people want to hear the thoughts of two schmucks like us. We actually had some downloads from Europe, so that's that's pretty cool. Obviously, some of the times that we forget to do the call to action. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on soon to be Google. We're on Apple. We're on all the different podcast platforms that you can think of. And then there's going to be a few more that's going to be added. So make sure you follow us. New episodes will drop at least every Thursday. We'd appreciate support, feedback, any show suggestion, whatever's on the board, because we want to make sure that we're driving relevant stuff into the marketplace. LB, you got anything to add to any of that? Yeah, I would just say that I I am also pleasantly surprised by the the downloads, but I think it's because we are on topic, right? So many people are looking for this information and we're excited to be able to share it in the way of book reviews and the way of interviews like the one we have today. So we're looking forward to getting started. That's a great tease, Mr. Big Voice Guy. So thank you for that. So you've had five episodes of LB and I talking about stuff. This is the main event. And by the the main event. James, are you ready for this? You are our first featured guest. Say hello. Hello world. How am I going to follow up that intro? Thank you for reaching out to me. I'm happy to be here and uh, help support uh, the launch of this, what I think is a great idea, great show. And I'll do my part to help along the great resignation. Folks who are just thinking about career paths and the leadership development. The timing could have been better. And I'm very excited to to launch here. I am super pumped to have you on the show. So for the listeners out there, I've known James for probably 10 years at this point. And when we look at the reason behind the show, we want to share stories of immigrants, women, people of color who have navigated their professional journey and became senior leaders and pass on the lessons that they've learned there to the next generation and help them progress further faster. In my mind, there's a reason why I wanted to single out James as the first featured guest on the show. His story is phenomenal. And I think everybody that tunes in, and we're going to be promoting the hell out of this because he's got a phenomenal story. There's going to be a lot of stuff that you'll take away from it. Pressure's on. You better not make me look silly like LB did on his episode. I thought Uh, I did pretty well. Thank you very much. I will say before I hand it off to James and have him start the conversation. So typically we do this over video. And I have to bust on James a little bit because when I said, hey, there's going to be a video portion of this, his comment was, dude, I haven't gone to the barber in like forever because I took work from home a little too seriously. So 
This won't be on video, but I'm sure with the response that we're going to get to James's story, we will be doing a video session. And just as a point of fact, if this was on video, you'd see my zero fade lined up nice and tight. That's epic stuff right there. So next time, James, you're going to be expected to look the part. I'll do my best to earn my way back here. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Let's get rolling, James. Let's start at the beginning. What's your story? It all started in Brooklyn for me. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. And we're talking about pre-gentrified Brooklyn. Paint a better picture for you. If you've ever seen the movie uh, New Jack City, that would probably give you a better indicator of what Brooklyn was like (laughs) back then, especially the area that I grew up in. I grew up in East New York. Brownsville, moved around quite a bit, Flatbush, just general working class areas that had high prevalences of crime and drug at the time. I'm an 80s baby and intimately familiar with the crack era and the crack epidemic. I saw what it did to people in my community. So Brooklyn was just a different beast back then. That actually helped me along in a couple of ways because my parents were immigrants from Haiti. And they had very traditional values as far as raising their children and keeping me away from the evil elements. And at a very young age, I wasn't allowed to go outside to play at any point. So I had to keep myself entertained. And so they would buy me books by the dozen and they'd rent me a ton of videos. And so those methods basically gave me a lot of insight into a world that existed beyond what I was witnessing on a daily basis. And so that's probably my earliest memory. I remember watching Dynasty when I was like eight years old and thinking, man, I'd love to live like that. What are we doing here? Why aren't we like those people there? And so that, that just fueled my curiosity from then. You're, you're not kidding about being an 80s kid with watching Dynasty. Before we actually dig into that aspect of growing up, tell us a little bit about what family life was like. What were the things that you saw and observed your parents and your mom and the struggles and how did that shape you? as you were very young? I'd say my earliest memories, was about four or five. And the emphasis, even from that point on, was always on having as strong an education as possible. Caribbean immigrants, they get to this country, they understand that education is its own currency, and that will be what enables you to get the kind of life that you want. And, and they were super optimistic. Uh, unfortunately, my parents ended up getting divorced when I was four years old. Even then, my father would check in and, and ensure that I was learning my ABCs. The emphasis was always on making sure I learned something from day to day. He would ask me, I remember being asked questions about how to spell certain words at four years old. And that emphasis was, was something that really stuck with me. My mother worked as a laboratory technician at the Bronx Lebanon Hospital. So going from Brooklyn to Bronx, we're talking about a, a nearly three-hour commute every morning, 5 or 6 a.m., and take a dollar cab to a bus, to the train, to another bus. When she got to the Bronx, she took me to work twice. And I remember crying the third time she wanted to take me to work because I did not want to wake up at 5 a.m. And I didn't want to endure that hellacious commute that she had. So those those are some of the things that stick out from that point. So I I realized, man, she's working really hard to maintain this life that we have. Thank goodness, even though we were poor, I never suffered. I never starved. I never went hungry. And so I was always thankful for that. Once I turned five and it was time for kindergarten, putting me into the school system, I remember fondly, she sent me to live with a family called the Brunos. Now, the matriarch of the family was a friend of hers, and that family was incredibly well off. I I think about them today. Their daughter's a physician, another daughter's a nurse. They were an upper middle class uh, Brooklyn family, lived in a better neighborhood. And so my mother wanted to send me there so that they could take care of any of my educational needs because between her commute, the amount of hours she worked each day, and she just didn't have the time or the strength to raise a kid on her own at that point. And so I went to live with this family and they treated me like one of their own. That was my first real formative experience in terms of being able to learn how to succeed. They taught me how to read and write. And I remember that 
vividly. They had two teenage daughters. And to this day, I thank them. They could have been outside doing what teenage girls normally do, but they took me under their wings. They sat with me each night, taught me how to spell, taught me how to read, taught me how to write, taught me how to write in cursive, invested a lot of time and effort. And I ended up staying with that family for three years. And my mother would visit on weekends or she'd pick me up on weekends. And I could tell it was tearing her apart to do that. But that was the sacrifice she felt she needed to make to ensure that I had the strong enough foundation to be able to take care of myself and be successful in my further endeavors. And so that emphasis on education has always stuck with me. And the by any means necessary attitude also stuck with me. She was willing to give up her only kid to another family that she thought could do better. James, that's interesting. A lot of what you're sharing, being also West Indian, I, I was smiling, listening to a lot of what you were saying, because it resonated in terms of the focus. So I think I had shared, for example, like if we watch television for every hour of television, we had to do two hours of reading and that sort of thing. And to this day, one of the drivers that I think about when Jim and I talked about doing this show was the immense amount of reading. We were generally bouncing that back and forth off of one another. And we thought, hey, we may be on to something. I had that these anecdotal stories about where we began and how we got to where we are. You don't necessarily think about it. I think that right now we're asking the question. We kind of have you on the spot. And unfortunately for those of us that we won't actually make this a video, it, it resonates with me because I saw the emotion as you were talking about that. You were talking about the sacrifice. I remember as a child not seeing my mom, actually. So I spent most of that time with my grandmother. You're from the Bahamas, right? I'm from the Bahamas, yeah. The interesting element is the amount of responsibility that you have. I think it's interesting because the way you said what you said, there is that genuine empathy and care for people in that and what you talked about. So I'm looking forward to continuing down that path of hearing a little bit more about that. As well. Eloquently put, I couldn't have said it better. I share your sentiment. One of the interesting things about what you just mentioned, James, is that all three of us grew up varying degrees of dirt poor. LB, his story is out there. James, we're just getting into your story. My mom literally flew to halfway around the world or maybe three quarters of the way around the world because we couldn't afford an apple where I was from. So we look at where we are now and the opportunity that we have. That's one of the root elements of why we do the show, because I think if you untap all of that potential, that brilliance that's hidden inside of everybody and give them the cheat codes, as LB says... There's no limit to what you can accomplish. You just need to have a roadmap. And what's interesting about all three of our grew up poor stories, we never really felt poor, really, because in the grand scheme of things, there are people that were a lot poorer than us living on a dollar or two a day. So comparatively, we had a better starting point. Now, the goal is to equalize that. How can we equalize that through the work that we do and through the stories that we share? I think the common theme too, though, Jim, is that the level of care that we had, though, even though we were poor, insulated us from that perspective of what what you define or what Hollywood stereotypes or what the news stereotypes as being poor. That that family unit and in James, in your case, the Brunos being an extended family was also an important element. And so that kind of insulates you from thinking the idea of being poor because I never felt, and I always felt like something else that James touched on that that struck, an accord, that struck a chord with me was that my reading was my opportunity to escape. So I felt as I was reading, I was living vicariously through the people that I was reading about. And the different areas that I read about were generally 
what I read about to this day, right? Human development, leadership, talent development. Those are things that have always been important to me. I knew I was poor watching Dynasty. (laughs) (laughs) But no, you're absolutely right. I was insulated from the ravages that come with dream poverty, being in that situation. It was a huge advantage and it certainly paid dividends because as I started to learn, I was far, I was much further along, you know, than some of my peers in the school system I was in at the time. And so just as a direct result of their intervention and, and the amount that they taught me as far as reading and learning and the study skills and learning skills that they taught me, I got identified pretty early as a, a smart kid, quote unquote. And so I was able to skip two grades before I got to junior high. And that was just a direct result of the benefits I was getting from that initiative to educate me from an early age. And so that right there was the first real major milestone for me in terms of realizing what I could accomplish. Because once you get identified as a smart kid in those systems, you do get a lot of positive feedback, a lot of encouragement, and they do stretch you. They do go out of their way to ensure that you're getting access to other or higher levels of the same material to move you along a bit further. And I got rewarded, unfortunately, not rewarded because uh, socially it was awful, but I did get rewarded by skipping a couple of grades and moving along the system. And then, and that once again, just gave me great feedback on, on what I could have potentially accomplished if I kept on this particular path. Being identified, that's always a good thing, but there was some foundational stuff that you're just skipping over that we talked about in pre-production that I think is important to mention. You talked about how the Brunos helped you lay some of the foundation by extending your community. But there was another story that you shared about, and I forgot the exact context. Your mom would drop you off at the library or something like that? Yeah. After my three-year stay uh, with that family, I went back to living with my mom. Now, during summers, we couldn't afford childcare, babysitting or anything like that. So she would just drop me off at the local public library, give me a little bit of lunch money and just keep me there all day. For me, I was in paradise. I was surrounded by all of these books. I was reading them for free, and that was helping me self-learn and continue my development over these boring summers where I couldn't afford to go to camp or we didn't travel. We couldn't do anything fun that families normally do. And so the library was my respite. Now, it being the Brooklyn Public Library back then, there was a large homeless contingent. You saw the occasional crackhead wandering in and out. And so that made you want to really dive into the books even more to escape, you know, to piggyback off of the thought that Lawrence had earlier. It became my escape. I'm a man of history, and I started reading quite a bit about ancient civilizations, the Spartan Rome, just these vivid histories, the history of democracy. And that's what, you know, fueled uh, a lot of my philosophies and political philosophy and ideological thinking. And then I think when I was 11, 12, around that age, I picked up Atlas Shrugged because I liked the cover. You know, I didn't know anything about Ayn Rand. I just saw a god holding the world on his shoulders. And then when I read through it, the characters, my goodness, it was, you had Hank Reardon and Daphne Taggart. These were characters who were uncompromising in their faith in themselves, despite an oppressive bureaucratic system. They had their goals. They did everything they could to achieve them. And just seeing characters that vivid, how could I not identify? And seeing how their passions and, and, and their skills and, and, and their conscious self-development made them go up against all sorts of adversity. I liken it to the situation that I was in at the time, you know, during the 90s. And so that was my second major milestone. For those that haven't already figured this out, you got three big friggin' nerds in the same room talking about <laughs> books. It's that kind of show. You just said something that struck me. And that's these characters that you're reading, whether they're historical or fiction, they all had strong themes of uncompromising faith in self. I know where you're going with this. How did that impact you in terms of how you orient yourself to the world and push forward from there. You've known me long enough to know that I love going on these rants about the way that limited thinking inhibits our opportunities. It's hard to already take an objective look at yourself and your capabilities, 
but you have to have an uncompromising faith in yourself to know that there are environments beyond what you're living in and you can reach them. Now, one of the issues we have with limited thinking is the fact that if we don't see enough people look, look like us doing something, we don't really imagine that it's possible or we don't imagine that it's within the realm of possibility. And that's probably one of the hardest habits that we, we have to break. I, I was able to break it through literature, thank goodness. But that required concerted effort to expose me to a lot of different things. And unfortunately, that's why I love the fact that a show like this could prove helpful to people who might still be inhibited in the way that they think or view themselves in relation to their environment. And obviously, I don't want to sound like one of those self-help gurus. There's a bell curve that exists. Most of us are average, but you kind of do need to believe that you're the exception and that you are above average because I'm sure if I took an IQ test, nothing would jump off the charts. It's just the fact that I know or I've taken the red pill from the matrix. So I was able to actually see beyond my immediate circumstances. It's, just, it's a really tough habit to break. You have to have an element of self-delusion there a little bit, but anyone of average intelligence, you know, can learn up to the next level. And as long as you know that, it's up to you to then do everything you can to take the initiative and do it. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's definitely possible as the three of us can attest. Yeah, I would agree. My interpretation of that is that a lot of that has to do with emotional intelligence, too. So you mentioned about the element of, of the IQ. But I think that the eats is really knowing what you have. And I think that it is important to have a, a sense of confidence. My grandmother would say to me that you can be anything that you want to be. You don't let people tell you what you're going to be. And I remember telling her that I used to watch, and I'm definitely dating myself, but I used to watch uh, the reruns of this show, Perry Mason. And I said that I wanted to be an attorney. And I can't remember who was in the house, but they said that we generally don't become attorneys. And before they could finish the statement, my grandmother cut them off and said, if he says that he's going to be an attorney, he is going to be an attorney. I took it and ran with it from that. It was absolute at that point. And from time to time, my grandmother would ask me about it. What is it? What are you doing? And she told me, she said, attorneys read a lot. They read broadly. They read about everything so that when they come into a situation, they're able to, they're able to manage it. Right. And I don't even know if she knew that to be true, but what I do know is that she caught my attention in that this whole idea and notion of I could be anything that I wanted to be. Jim knows that from where we began our friendship that there I was a turnaround specialist. So different places that I was in, I could see in terms of a system. And I think that has a lot to do with going all the way back to what you describe as is our, our early days, which is this is something that I think Jim uh, has keyed in on about this beginning, this start, and what you're describing, how you've had made this journey, I think is an important one for people to listen to. And I think that limited thinking is, is so big. I think that's so big and a great call out. When you mentioned your grandmother making that comment as an offhand comment, or maybe she didn't realize that attorneys actually do read such a high volume. If you look at the average upper middle class family or wealthy family, they're giving these kids these affirmations on a regular basis. It's actually hugely important to have that. Uh, I'm very glad she undercut the comment that your other relatives have made about not being lawyers because that stuff sets in. There's a definite cause and effect there. There's an interesting observation that I have, and I don't know if this is necessarily unique to communities of color, but we do a phenomenal job of kneecapping ourselves. What you can or can't do, what you can or can't be, there's always this element within our communities that I don't know the exact way to phrase it, but maybe it's conditioning. Call it a lack of imagination. Yeah, I think it's an important message to get across where you have three successful brown people talking about what the pathway is. There, there's an Olympics commercial that's going on right now where 
You have a, a young African-American kid watches an African-American bobsledder from the U.S. win a gold medal, and it prompts her to train, and there's that journey. It takes one person to open your eyes to what's possible, and then that unlocks it for somebody else. And I don't want to turn it into too big a thing, but that's really one of the big things that I care about is how can we accelerate that vision? How can we pass down that vision? So getting back to the James conversation, the passion for reading, the passion for education, your community helped build that into you. That opened your mind to possibilities. So as those possibilities became apparent or at least on your radar, how did that move you through your high school and whatever the path took after high school? I actually watched Malcolm Gladwell give a talk. And just to piggyback the last point you made about the Olympic athlete, and he mentioned how important it was to see people who look like you accomplishing things for you to understand that the possibility existed for yourself. And he used Usain Bolt as an example. Some kid in Jamaica probably is probably watching him train every day. And you have the Jamaicans becoming these dominant sprinters as a result. And so I, I liken myself to that because I would maintain contact with the Brunos. And I would always ask the daughters, they were preparing college applications. And this is while I'm in junior high. College started becoming a bit of a possibility for me, even though I didn't know the first thing about applying or attending. But I watched them go through the motions. I knew their dad and their mom were college educated. My mother kept saying, if you're going to be a member of this family, you're going to have to be a college graduate. There's no compromising there. And then you had shows like A Different World. I said, oh, wow, okay, man, these, a lot of these brown kids are, are making it and being very successful. And I saw myself in Dwayne Wayne. And seeing some of those examples definitely made me a little ambitious when it came to college, but I still didn't know how to approach it. I knew my only job was to get good grades. And so that was how I made it through high school. But interestingly enough, I would look at the college brochures and I would see these ridiculous tuition costs. And then I said, man, I'm going to have to figure out an end around to get to college. Because once again, from what I'd seen on TV, college had only been for athletes, really smart kids and rich kids. And so I said, well, I'm neither the three. And when you think about it, as far as the colleges, those tend to be the three types that are most in tune with the application process. Like when you really break it down, I'm not one of those three, what are my options? And then the army came calling. And so that was my next development opportunity. We'll dig into the army bit. But as soon as you mentioned, how do I figure all this stuff out about going going to college, it triggered a memory in my head that I completely forgot about until you mentioned it. I'm, I'm a first generation immigrant. My parents came from India. I was born in India. I'm the first kid in our family to go through the American school system. So this whole college application process was completely new. We had no network within our family, no community to latch onto and, and advise us. And, and really my parents' culture is you don't ask for help. You figure stuff out on your own. I would have probably been a lot better off if I got in the habit of asking for help because it's that communal knowledge that's going to help you advance the ball and you got to ask questions, which is really odd considering how many questions that I ask. But here's the college story. So I'm going through the application process. I get accepted to Stanford and I get accepted to Brown on partial scholarships. And the first question that pops up into my mind is, how am I going to pay for this? Because my parents are middle class and I'm looking at, I, I got partial scholarships, but you're, you're still looking at the $20,000, $30,000 a year. So I asked my guidance counselor in high school, is, hey, I got accepted to this college and that college. And if somebody asked me that question today, I would say, don't worry about the, the cost necessarily. Think about what this is going to mean if you graduate from here 
and you get into the world of work, the network that you would build just by the fact that you actually graduated from these organizations. That's worth, especially if you're in like a, a real major versus underwater basket weaving or something like that. So my guidance counselor, I go in and say, hey, I have all these acceptance letters and these are the two that I'm most interested in. His first question to me, how are you going to pay for it? So the reason, <laughs> so this is a high school guidance counselor. Yeah. And, and that's the first thing you're supposed to be guiding people to make good decisions. If at that time, somebody had mentioned the value of network on what it could have meant, you're talking about a completely different game change in terms of navigating that college journey. It's funny because when I think about what you were just saying, and this is no slight to those in that profession, but I absolutely guided my first son who graduated from Marquette and my second son, who's at Elmhurst University. I guided that knowing what I knew going through the experience very similar to the both of you looking at how am I going to, to pay for this and that sort of thing. My mom didn't go to college, so I was also first generation. I feel like I had a lot of support in high school and folks saying, you definitely are talented enough. You should be going to college. But the, that gap was the high school counselor who was basically, yeah, how are you going to get there? And that stuck with me so much that when I became a parent, literally, I guided my boys down the path of this sounds really bizarre, but like uh, one of my favorite magazines is U.S. News and World Report, the edition that ranks all the colleges. And so every year I started tracking it that I could pretty much tell you who the top 10 are on a regular basis. But more importantly, the information that I was pulling from that was so that I would be able to be more aware than my family was when it came time for me to go to school and then to be able to help facilitate that for my boys. And so I, I chuckled both when you all were talking about that experience and going to college. And I wanted to circle back just a little bit because something that James talked about was the new buzz is that representation matters. And it really does. So when he was referencing the part about the, the Olympics, when you brought that up, and then when he was underscoring that, this is where it really does matter. And I think that it does loop back into why we're doing what we're doing in terms of having James and the other guests that we'll have on the show to really talk about this and continue to tease out some of the things that are not necessarily covered in conversations, because oftentimes we, we don't want to address it, but we need to address it. For sure, limited thinking is absolutely critical for us to remove from our psyches or to at least minimize as much as we possibly we can. We're not robotic. So it doesn't mean it necessarily is going to happen. One of my mantra is be stronger than your fears and greater than your doubt, because we, we all experience that. But I think that we live vicariously through the reading. We live vicariously through things like podcasts and the stories of others and hearing more about that. And, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about James's story that we can continue to help others. James, you may or may not have gotten some inaccurate advice as you're moving through high school and thinking about college, but nobody really oriented your head a particular way. So you made the decision to take an alternate path, which is through the military. Once um, I realized that Hilt Hillman was out of the question, I, I actually, true story, <laughs> I, I wanted to attend Hillman based on what I'd seen on, on A Different World on the Cosby Show. So yeah. that's how narrow my view of college was at the time. And, and that's just how misinformed I was. And that's just a sign of how ineffective what little network I had was at the time for making such a decision. So but, I just but, wanted to underscore that and yeah. emphasize that by saying I wanted to go to Hillman. Go but on. think about that, though. So in that era, you had the standard stereotype of what people of color could fall into. You had all the movies that were New Jack City all of that other stuff. So you were either in that group or you were an athlete or you're a musician. And the only sort of functional image or 
depiction that I can think of like highly functioning brown people is the show. That's what triggered you or, or at least connected you to potentially that path. Caribbeans in general tend to go into either teaching or nursing or the medical field. I didn't want to deal with patients and bodily fluids and things like that. And I wasn't particularly drawn to teaching. And those tend to be the two careers that they just pass down among themselves because they've got a lot strong networks within those fields. They've got a lot of knowledge about it. And the biggest indicator of where you will end up is what? The educational background of your parents and their income. And so the way Lawrence was able to, because he's got a great background in developing leaders and, and, and he understands the way the educational system works. He was able to help his kids navigate it. And that's just something I didn't have at the time. So you decided to go the military. They were throwing around money for college up to 50,000. And if you went to a state school, you know, you're a national guard, they'd cover most of your tuition, if not all of it. And so I was getting all of these, I was reading all of that in their brochures and seeing the commercials at the time about the army college fund. So that kind of made that an option. Was that a purely transactional play? Hey, this is a means to an end. And if they're giving away this amount of money, it'll finance my education. Or was there something more to it at the time or something more that you uncovered over time while being in the service? No, it was purely transactional, of course. In yeah. retrospect, the number of lessons learned I had while I was in there continue to pay dividends to this day. And I consider myself fortunate that I had that experience before getting to college. I would not have wanted to be that typical college student who didn't really know what they were doing or blowing away their inheritance on it without understanding how to get, how to navigate or get from goal A to goal B. First major lesson I learned being in the military was how to navigate a bureau bureaucratic organization in a bureaucratic structure. That's something that gives people a lot of culture shock if they haven't experienced it yet. You're filling out numerous levels of forms. You've got to make sure they go to the right places. You've got to follow up. You've got to be patient. You've got to wait. You've got to know whom within the organization can speed things along. And so picking up those skills, very critical for my development later on in my career. Navigating a bureaucracy in and of itself, that's worth its weight in gold. Yes, absolutely. And second is just to understand how to behave in the workplace. Over time, I've seen people miss out on opportunities or get fired for doing things that either they should have known better or that's, that they may have thought were seemingly trivial. Being prompt, being on time for meetings. I've seen people get let go for these persistent issues. And one thing about the military, they'll work that out of you very quickly. You'll understand that being on time is late. Being 15 minutes early is being on time. You'll take pride in your appearance. Of course, your room has to be clean. Your shoes have to be shined. There are inspections. And so it just really develops a lot of these habits that are that are useful to take with you into the workplace. And those were just on the surface. And then I learned quite a bit about leadership because as you move through the ranks and you get promoted, I learned about what works and I learned about what doesn't work. And we can talk more in detail about that. But principally, there are three types of leaders that I came across during my tenure in the military. You've got the leaders that only care about their personal glory and will sacrifice the team as needed to get there. And then when it's time to judge the results, the ratings will be negative. You've got other leaders who lead by fear or who lead by punishment, who lead by negative reinforcement. That only works to a certain point. And then you've got leaders that you'd run through a wall for because they lead by example. You're willing to get in there and work alongside you. They wouldn't ask you to do anything that they wouldn't do themselves. And their focus is on making you invest in the team itself and the people around you so that regardless what the mission is, you'll work as a viable support system for the people within that team. And then you'll, always, you'll almost always accomplish that mission. That final type of leader was the one that I did, that I always wanted to be or that I knew that I'd want to be if I were ever in position had I stayed in the military long term. And so just a great number of lessons that I learned on top of the money that they gave me for school, which was legit. And I was able to save a good portion of my salary as well. So when I got to college, I was in 
pretty good shape financially. And I also worked full-time while I was there, which was another added benefit of having prior military experience. So I was a full-time college student with a full-time job, making a full-time middle-class salary. So I was able to work my way through without too much disruption or or I think your pathway into college is in and of itself, it's an important lesson. One, for people that are navigating that journey for the first time, you have to prompt whoever your counselor is or whatever support system that you have. The question should be, how do we figure this out and make it work versus the negative of I can't make this work? So that's one. The other part that I think is really interesting, your journey from the military into college. You did it in a way where at least it sounds like you minimize your debt coming out of it. And that's crucial. If you can do both things, get to the school that you want to get to and navigate it with a hard major and navigate it with a minimal debt footprint, that sets you up pretty well to really accelerate into your early career. So those are you know, a couple of quick takeaways that I gathered from the conversation. I think that there are those who, who will hear us that may have children, that this is an important call out of what you just mentioned. So as a parent, to be present in that process for, for your children. And it seems it's perhaps counterintuitive where you may have already been to college, but you're so far removed that maybe you don't remember these elements. So it's important to, to keep that in mind. The, the other thing that, that came to mind when I was listening to James was that you talked about the, the three types of leadership. And if you heard what he was saying, there, there were two pretty much that he learned what not to do. And that is such a valuable lesson that sometimes we don't necessarily key in on. But that's an important element of knowing the, thing, the things that you recognize that don't inspire people, that don't get them to produce what could potentially be their, their best work are things that you also need to make sure that you are tabling to say, those are some of the things that I won't do. The positive of that, though, is is saying, here are the things that I will do to encourage the folks. So when you think about the whole idea of what you've learned through the military is that, again, we heard this early on, and hopefully you'll get to it later. But when you were talking before the podcast actually started, you were talking about mission and execution. When you were talking about the, the doing three different roles simultaneously, I would imagine that the the military piece had something to do with helping you to be primed for that. You'll definitely learn how to project manage, switching from one responsibility to the next very quickly based on need while you're there. And you'll also learn how to properly function within a team environment. Mm -hmm. And and you'll understand how to work with people whom you may not have much in common, people from different backgrounds, people you may not necessarily get along with. I always recommend the Army as being a sort of um, professional melting pot, quote unquote, because it just gathers people from different parts of the country. This was the first time I was extensively around white people, for example. In my own community, I'd, I'd always been lived in predominantly black communities. And so just that kind of exposure also helped prep me for what I was going to experience when I got to college, when it was 5% black or 6% black or whatever it was. The Army is a microcosm of a greater society. Obviously, I don't recommend that specific path in every case. It helps to actually want to be there. But the takeaways there in terms of working within teams, navigating organizations, and the leadership capabilities you'll develop, those obviously, uh, I forget the transitional word, but they're suitable for the actual professional marketplace and workplace. The other thing that you just touched on, which is also really important when we talk about leadership and the way in which we move for uh, diverse populations is you, you talked about cultural adaptation. So where you predominantly existed and then moving into that environment also probably gave you capabilities as well to be able to manage what you're managing today and leading the way in which that you actually lead. 
you also mentioned uh, Malcolm Gladwell earlier, and I am yeah. a huge Malcolm Gladwell fan. I've read everything, well, almost <laughs> everything that he's written. The only book that I haven't read yet is Talking to Strangers, but I just recently completed The Bomber Mafia, which is about the Air Force. So you will really, I think you'll appreciate it because it talks about uh, leadership. And just in short, it talks about two generals, General LeMay and General Hensel, and the way that they approached uh, war and bombing in uh, World War II. So it's really fascinating because it's a really off, I thought it was an off title, but it certainly talks about the element of leadership. And it's, it really is truly understanding the adaptation of culture and, and the evolution of a thing. So a great read. That's going to be a tease to the book review episode that we have at some point in the future. I think at this point, as we've moved through James's story, there's a lot of stuff there that for some people could represent a lifetime. Not to turn this into an infomercial, I'm going to turn this into an infomercial. But wait, there's more. <laughs> well, yeah, um, I, mean, I, I was 17 because right, I skipped a couple of grades. So I was 16 when I graduated high school. I was 17 when I joined the army. And then I was 19, you know, when I got back and started my college career. But I was also working as a professional at the same time. So a lot to take on early on. Yeah. And it lays a pretty good foundation. But your educational story didn't stop at just college. You're already a veteran. You're working full time. You're going to school full time. And then I'm probably skipping ahead a lot. There's probably a lot happened from the time that you left the service to entering the world of work and all that. So walk us through that, but also walk us through what happened after that. Oh, sure. I'll give you the cliff notes. So the full time job I had was in sales. I was selling insurance. And I always recommend, and I tell people this, if you have, if you don't know what you want to do, if you're young, get a job in sales. You'll learn people skills. You'll learn how to build rapport. Most importantly, you'll learn how to close. And you'll realize that nothing gets done in the business world, professional world, your personal life, without you being able to influence an outcome, influence ideas, get your point across. It's not going to matter how smart you are. It's not going to matter how charismatic you are. You need to understand how to influence, how to get your point across and how to pro and how to close. I was a terrible salesman in the beginning. And then I had a, a manager who suggested I read books from Zig Ziglar. That's not his real name, obviously, but he, he wrote a book called The Secrets of Closing the Sale. And I learned more about human dynamics, human interactions, personal dy- dynamics, reading that book and learning just the basics of closing on anything, job interviews, actual sales, getting dates. That book was the holy grail for me, just in terms of, of learning close. So highly recommend working in sales at some point early on in your career. And if it, and if this gives you added motivation, all of your heroes, the president is essentially a salesman. People who work at the top levels of the legal field, their job is to influence. People in consulting, people in investment banking, at the top, those jobs are all sales driven. And so you're going and you can't avoid, it's inevitable that you'll need that skill. That is a phenomenal point because if you look at organizational structures, there are very few CEOs of organizations that come through the operation silo. At some point, that CEO has spent time on the revenue side of the business. And if you do a distribution of where did these folks start from, they were responsible for driving revenue. So if you aspire as a young brown person to be at the top of the food chain of whatever company that you're at, you seriously have to look at the career implications of starting off in sales versus the operations or some other functional group that is basically serving the revenue organization. That's correct. And even if you hate it, just do it for a summer. Go work at a used car dealership when you're 17 and then learn what you learn there and take it with you. I think you keyed in on something uh, very important, James. We are always in the sales cycle. It's just a matter of whether or not we recognize it as such. And 
it's important to, to leverage the skill set. Because if you're not leveraging, if you're not leveraging the skill set to become proficient at it, you're always the one being sold. It's Absolutely. just no two ways about it. Absolutely. Yeah. I got really homesick, went back to Hofstra just to close the loop on that. And uh, I had a great educational experience. I'll give you two pieces that I got that I took specifically from school when I embedded myself in my love of history, World War II history. So I am going to read the book on Malcolm, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book because I'm a huge fan of uh, Curtis LeMay's story. So I learned initially, turn to your professors who are willing to mentor you because they've been there and they've done that. And some professors end up consulting. They end up in $500 an hour consulting roles for corporations. So if I was going to get free advice from these professors, I was going to take it. I had a professor who wanted to actually groom me. She wanted me to eventually run for office at some point. She wanted to put me through law school, wanted to, wanted to have me take the LSAT. And I wasn't interested in a legal career at the time. And she wanted me to start off as a public defender. And when I saw those salaries, <laughs> kind of balked. But I, I did look up the person she did end up sponsoring. And that woman and that girl ended up being a senior advisor to a senator. And so I'm thinking back in retrospect, man, I really should have, I really should have gotten on board with the program, but I didn't. But she told me at the time, she said, James, you're going to find that money isn't anything. Uh, my father was a wealthy CFO and he died basically upset that he didn't get to contribute more to society in his role. I stopped listening after wealthy. I said, oh, wait, he was a CFO, he was wealthy, as in millions, he was a millionaire? Okay, how did he get there? And so that was what, that was the impetus for my career in, in corporate finance and wanting to be a CFO, because my college professors, rich father, and, and for future reference, if, if you want to talk a kid out of pursuing a specific career field, you don't want to lead with your wealthy CFO dad. <laughs> but yeah, no, that, I mean, that, that's where I got that idea. And the second major takeaway from college actually was I learned the importance of networking. One tool that the upper middle class and upper class has that I don't think we appreciate enough is the power of networking from a very early age. They put their kids in boarding schools and private schools just to cultivate those networks from that age. And then these are the people who end up going to the schools you unfortunately passed up on and use those networks to greater effect. I listened to my college professors about finding networks where I could. Now, it's not something organic. It wasn't something natural organic to me. So I ended up pledging a fraternity in college, Kappa Alpha Psi, Fraternity Incorporated. So I did that. Instantly, I was surrounded by a generation or generations of leaders in their fields who all look like me. And so that was hugely inspiring. When I read about some of the famous members like Reginald F. Lewis, who's my icon, he, oh, yeah. he orchestrated the largest buyout at the time, Black Eye doing that. Reading, how could I not be inspired having read that? And just Black Greeks in general, I, I think, cultivate really strong networks within the community. That was another opportunity that I had that I was able to leverage college to obtain. Hey, James, I was just curious why you didn't choose the first, the oldest, and the coldest. <laughs> I'm cool with the alphas, too. <laughs> For those of you who are checking your bingo cards, mark off your three Greek boxes on your bingo cards for this episode. <laughs> Continue. For sure. I, I, I think, think Kappa's motto just resonated more with me personally. Achievement, yeah. Reginald F. Lewis. That's oh, yeah. Yeah, Reg Reginald F. Lewis is is one of is is an icon in, in my mind, and, and someone who I followed his career as well was definitely inspiring. Two things that you keyed in on, being the professor that that took you under wing, right, was actually two things that that happened there that are extremely important for people who are developing in the corporate sector, and, and I think in the world in general, right. One is mentoring. The second is that the most important, in my opinion, is the sponsorship. 
So when you said that someone was willing to offer you help, you took that help and you also had the ability that there was someone, the phrase that I use is that you want to have someone who will mention your name when you're not in the room for an opportunity. And that's that sponsorship piece. The second thing was that when you when you talked about the networking piece, that is absolutely, that's absolutely critical. And so you recognize that early on. How did you get to that so early? How did you recognize the networking being so important and the mentoring and the sponsorship being important so early in your career? I talked to some of my upper class friends in college about their career, their next steps and their career goals. Some of them already had jobs lined up or internships lined up. I never interned in, in undergrad because I didn't know better. And I, I, I like to travel. And so I, I use that opportunity to go backpack across halfway across the world. And talking to them, I realized their networks were basically their, the reason why they had everything just wired and set up so well for them upon graduation. They either had internships no one could get. They had jobs waiting for them upon graduation that they knew about really far in advance. I hadn't done that level of research. I didn't have that level of support. And so just by talking to them, I realized how important it was to be constantly cultivating your network, leveraging it any which way possible. And of course, using it to learn and, and, and to understand how the system and how the quote unquote game really worked. 95% of the jobs that are offered, they don't come from job boards. So I knew I was fortunate enough to learn that beforehand. Now, I was secure in the role that I had. I was making, as a 19 year old, I was making almost 50 grand a year. So I thought I was you know, good. But then when I, when I heard about their starting salaries, I realized there was a whole different ball game out there. And I put it in the back of my mind, okay, I'll stick with this job, but then I'll see where I can go afterwards. And fortunately, when I graduated, I had a, a frat brother who worked in, my line brother actually, who worked in HR. He was the one who directly recruited me into the Walt Disney Company as a financial analyst. And that's where I got my start post-graduation. So I just took what I saw the upper class, you know, white kids doing and just ran with it. And that's been my raison d'etre and my just cause ever since. I try to steal bits and pieces of as far as the way they strategize their lives and apply it to my own. So you talked again about that leveraging the network. But the other thing that I hope folks are listening to as well is, is that as you were listening to the network, you were also adapting to including intentionality behind what it is that you were doing. Absolutely critical when guiding your career. I, I didn't even know there was a name for that. So thank you. LB, you must have just read my mind because I was going to mention that. There was a deliberate intent once you had that opened up, that vision of what's possible from the upper class that you grabbed, James, that drove you to some interesting career and educational decisions. So. Tell us about that. What journey did that take you on? I, I always had back, grad school in the back of my mind. But I, once again, the astronomical cost, uh, the sticker shock always kept me from pursuing it intent. But there was another turning point in life that I, I want to discuss. Back in 2011, I think, uh, I suffered a, a mild cardiac event. In other words, I had a heart attack. And I remember waking up in the hospital. I did a two-week stay. I was by myself. I didn't know what time was what. My parents had long passed. I didn't really have any family around at the time. So I was in darkness for three-fourths of the day because I was just in and out of sleep. I would only wake up when they delivered my meals to me. So I just wanted to put some structure to, the, to these endless days. And so I decided to create a bucket list. And in that bucket list, I put down every single goal I ever wanted to attain, no matter how ridiculous I thought it was, and said, you know what? In the event that the next heart attack ends me, I want to make sure I've crossed off as many of these as possible. Let me tell you, there's a good motivator is the fear of death and actually seeing the sand glass, the hourglass above your head. And so that kind of got me into gear as far as wanting to make myself better in all sorts of different ways. And so some of the goal, the number one goal on there was be the CFO of a billion dollar P&L. So that, that one's still in process. 
But I had other goals like learn Spanish, learn Portuguese, learn French. I studied all those languages. I learned them. And one, one thing I realized is when you apply these building blocks to actually learning progressively, you're able to transition it into other areas you may not have thought possible. And that builds your confidence. And so at that point, I said, oh, what's a way that I can get into a management position, apply everything that I've been learning as I go? I'd always had a weakness in math. I made a, a conscientious decision to master it, or at least master it up until pre-calculus level. And at that point, I, I read an article about how Black people perform on standardized tests. And there are obviously many reasons why there are variances. Some of it are the education level of their parents, the exposure they get from a young age, the advanced programs that they participate in from a young age, the tutoring. There are many differences for these variances across race. But I didn't like the fact that such a low number of Black people scored above a certain percentile on the GMAT, for example. And so I made that my personal challenge for all of 2011. 2011, I said, you know what? I'm going to do what I've seen these upper-class families do. I'm going to give myself all the time in the world and all the money in the world to master this material. And so 2011, I was gone. I was just preparing for this exam. To this day, I'll watch a movie and I'll say, wow, this is really good. How come I never heard of this? And then I realized it came out in 2011. <laughs> just to give you an idea of how just blacked out I was. And so once again, brought on the tutors, learned from scratch, gave myself all the time in the world, spent gave myself a very generous budget, and I was able to score into the 90th percentile, mid-90 90 percentile. And that opened up a different quality of school for me that I hadn't previously known I was even eligible for. And I, I, once I got that, once I had that score in hand- This is where you dropped the school's the name. I'll get to that point. But no, <laughs> I, I started visiting all the top 10 programs after that. You know, I was visiting Columbia, NYU Stern. I ended up going to the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. And once again, lots of eye-opening took place there as well, both in terms of leadership and in terms of networking. The network alone at a school like that is priceless. I, I watched that journey because I think that happened probably a handful of years after I think I had finished my doctoral research at the time that you had started your MBA program. Maybe my timeline's a little off, but I remember. No, you're right. I, I remember vividly the day when I said, well, I get to call you doc now. Although you had dibs on the doctor moniker before I did. <laughs> so that's a story for another day. But I mean, there's an intentionality about it. In previous episodes, LB and I have talked about how we're big comic book nerds. And I'm going to deviate from that a little bit because I'm going to throw a DC Comics reference. One of my favorite DC Comics heroes is Jon Stewart, the Green Lantern. And the reason why I like Green Lantern is because everything that they do is limited only by their force of will. And will is the strongest force in that universe. And I think when we haven't even gotten to where you're at now, but when you look at your trajectory, as an outsider and, and somebody's listening to this story, this is a testament of will. What are you willing to invest? What are you willing to just grind to get what you want and a relentless pursuit of that? We opened the show when we were talking about limited thinking. You're only limited by your imagination. So the key is to try to untap the imagination of people that are out there and give them a view or vision of what's possible. And then once they have that vision, it's a matter of working out, okay, how do I achieve that vision? We haven't even gotten to, to what you're doing now in terms of building high-performance teams. It's, it's a great journey, and we haven't even reached the really good stuff. <laughs> what jumps out for me is that when James was talking about the bucket list and talking about goals and the way that he approached it, that's called his chunking, right? So he was looking at different aspects, accomplishing those, and then moving on to the next set, accomplishing those. And 
he talking about he talked about breaking it down. He talked about the process to how he was able to score in the 90th percentile on the GMAT. So these are those examples where our listeners have the opportunity to live vicariously to help themselves. We certainly are, are glad, James, that you came out on the other side of the, uh, the cardiac arrest situation. This, though, is that opportunity where people need to listen in on, you don't necessarily have to go through that experience. You're, you're sharing what was, in fact, the driving force behind it. And then we all have the opportunity to learn from that. We've gone a long way. We've talked about James's story from the time he was growing up poor in New York to the early experiences of what he learned when his mom dropped him off at the library, the influence of the Brunos, all of the military service and the lessons learned there. And now we're at the point where James has ticked off a number of things that he wanted to get squared away, honestly, through just sheer force of will. And he is about to start his journey as a Tuck MBA. So on our next episode, we're going to go through James's journey at Tuck and then dig into all of his experience when it comes to building high-performance teams as a professional. So that will wrap this episode. And as usual, we will be dropping new episodes every Thursday. You can find us on all of the major podcast platforms that are out there. Please follow, like, share, comment, do all of the things that you need to do. You can find James, LB, myself on LinkedIn. Make sure you connect with us. Tune in next time because the story is just getting started. Wait till you hear what this guy's done through his MBA career, or through his MBA experience, and also in his professional career. James, thanks for hopping on. We are super excited to get the next episode going, and we'll see you in a little bit. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.